0: let us begin in prayer. Father, we pray that you will now take your word and speak to our hearts that we might understand your heart and that we might have your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little over a week ago, uh, all of us were informed by the President of the United States that the most wanted criminal in the world, the terrorist Osama bin Laden, had been tracked down by American forces and had been killed. Uh, immediately, there was a flood of emotions across our nation that were far-ranging. Some people uh, gathered outside the White House and began to cheer and began to sing the national anthem in God Bless America. Uh, others began to chant at various sporting events, USA, USA, USA. Uh, many were relieved to know that... Uh, An individual who'd brought such heartache and pain was now gone, and so perhaps they would be able and others would be able to sleep a little bit better at night. Uh, Some were glad that he was dead and actually rejoiced in the thought that he was in hell. And indeed, some consigned him to the neighborhood that is now occupied by people like uh, Adolf Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Judas. Uh, Others were flooded with emotions that took them back to what happened on 9-11. And some even chided the U.S. for invading the sovereign airspace of Pakistan and questioned whether or not uh, we could have brought him back alive. I understand all of that. Uh, I even share in some of the emotions that I just delineated. But imagine for just a moment that there was today a nation filled with Osama bin Laden's. And imagine that that nation was growing in power, uh, in influence, and that without any question at all, it posed a major threat to the United States of America. In fact imagine that we find ourselves in decline, uh, politically, economically, morally. Uh, and this nation, at least politically, is on the upswing so that it, it's pretty clear that if they choose to come against us, we will probably be, no, it is certain that we will be defeated and subjugated to them. Then imagine that in his... Providence, God appears to you, and he says to you, I'm going to wipe out that nation filled with Osama bin Laden's. I'm going to judge them because their evil and their wickedness is far beyond what I will tolerate any longer. And you begin on the inside to rejoice. Maybe you'd begin to sing God Bless America, and you're excited to hear that no longer need you fear... Uh, this threat from without. But then God says, But uh, I take no delight in the death of sinners. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I'm going to give them one more chance, and you are going to be the means... And the vehicle whereby I give them that one more chance. And I'm going to send you to them. You're to preach the gospel to them. And uh, if they repent, then I will stay my hand of judgment and uh, my hand of destruction. Well, you were pretty happy with the first part of what God said. But now you're not so sure about uh, the second component. In fact, to be honest... You don't like that at all. And so if it's really up to you as to whether or not God is going to wipe them out or allow them to survive and continue to pose a threat for our nation, you'll make sure you're not the one to intervene. You'll make sure you're not the one who goes and preaches to them the gospel because some people are just so bad they deserve to go to hell. you don't, I don't, have we really lost sight of what great sinners all of us really are in the presence of a holy God? Take your Bible and join me, you probably know now, in the book of Jonah. Very quickly this morning, I'm going to walk you through these four chapters, and I raise a question that I want all of us to consider this morning in light of current events and in light of God's Word, will you be on mission with God? No matter where He sends you, no matter how evil the people group that you engage, whether here in America or around the world, will you be on mission with God? It's a powerful question, isn't it? One that is answered, I think, by this book of four chapters, 48 verses a book that has a reluctant prophet who is bound and determined not to get in the way of God's judgment because he knows that God is gracious and that God is kind. And as we walk through these four chapters, I do think there's a lesson that we can glean from each of them. And again, we'll move very rapidly, but let me go ahead and set the table and then we'll move on. First chapter, I believe we learned this. Uh, You can run, but you can't hide from God. He is the hound of heaven who will track you down no matter where you go, even in a Bible college or a seminary. Secondly, salvation is of the Lord. No one can save but the Lord God Himself. That's very clearly uh, delineated and and made plain in chapter 2. Thirdly, our God is the God of the second chance. Second chance for His rebellious prophet and obviously a second chance for an evil nation like uh, the Assyrians embodied in their major city, Nineveh. And then finally, and it's not by accident the book ends the way that it does, lost people matter to God. And therefore, lost people ought to matter to you and to me. It begins with the understanding that you can run, but uh, you cannot hide from God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and three imperatives follow very quickly there in verse 2. Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city. By the way, there are a lot of great things in the book of Jonah. The word occurs in the Hebrew at least 14 times. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and here's the third imperative. Call out, preach against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, one would expect God's prophet to immediately respond in obedience, but that is not what happens at all. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You ought to mark that phrase. It occurs three times in chapter one. Uh, Jonah, God's man, Jonah, God's prophet, is running from the presence of the Lord. In fact, he goes down, and don't miss the literary strategy there. Uh, He's not moving upward. He's moving downward. He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarsus. He paid the fare, and the ESV has a terrible translation here. He went on board. So, why is that a terrible translation? Because literally in the Hebrew it is, he went down. He went down to Tarshish, and he went down to the ship to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is running from the Lord. Now, you might ask the question, I do, why is he running? He's a prophet. Uh, By occupation and vocation, he is to preach the word of the Lord. And of course, uh, what better audience to preach the word to than sinners? And yet, Jonah is not interested in preaching to all sinners. Uh, He is only interested in preaching to certain sinners. You see, the bottom line is, Jonah was a racist. Jonah was a bigot. And he was filled, be careful here, with nationalistic pride... That was of such a nature that he took delight in thinking of other peoples and other nations being damned by God and wiped out. He thought well of that. In other words, a, a, a disobedient Israel is better than a potentially repentant Nineveh. And so he runs from the presence of the Lord, but... Jonah should have known better because you can't run from a God who is omnipresent, can you? Well, no. And so he finds that out in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty, again, a great tempest on the sea. Uh, The ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and they cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, oh, he's gone down again. He's gone down into the inner part of the ship. He had lain down and he was fast asleep. The world is literally going to hell in a handbasket and God's prophet is asleep, oblivious to all that is going on around him. Be very careful. In what we are called to do, we can sometimes so cocoon ourselves in our studies so uh, insulate ourselves from the real world, and again, uh, I, I live in a context where that is always a massive, massive uh, obstacle that I have to overcome, that we become oblivious to the hurt and the sorrow and the pain and what sin is doing all around us. We're like Jonah. We're laying down somewhere fast asleep, oblivious to the billions who are perishing without even having an opportunity to hear the gospel. Well, Jonah went down to sleep, but God sends the captain and he commands Jonah there in verse six, arise. Call out to your God. We're calling out to all of ours. Let's try yours. Maybe He will uh, give a fault to us that we will not perish. But evidently, that didn't cause the sea to become calm. And so verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. But being a good Baptist, Jonah was bound to lose where gambling took place. And of course, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 tells us that it is the Lord who determines the cast of the lot. And so we're not surprised that when they cast the lot to find out uh, upon whom the evil has come, uh, the lot fell on Jonah. He's been exposed. Uh, he now has to give an account. And so they pepper him very quickly there in verse 8 with five questions. They say to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Secondly, what is your occupation? Thirdly, where do you come from? Fourth, what is your country And fifthly, of what people are you? And very interestingly, Jonah basically answers all the questions but one. What is your occupation? Because right now, Jonah doesn't really want to be reminded of or think about the fact that he is supposed to be the man of God who preaches the Word of God. And so Jonah fesses up. I am a Hebrew, he says in verse 9. I fear Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven. He made the sea. He made the dry land, which is simply an idiomatic way of saying he made everything. And if he made everything, he has power over everything. And if he made everything, he's also everywhere present. And so then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, what is this that you have done? For now they knew that he was fleeing, third time in chapter 1, from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Well, they appreciated his honesty evidently. And so they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may become quiet for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And John again has a moment of conscience. He says, Well, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So the men, because they appreciate his honesty, begin to row hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. And the Lord caused the sea to grow more and more tempestuous against them, and therefore they called out to Yahweh and listened to their prayer. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Yahweh, have you done as it pleased you? So they picked up Jonah they hurled them into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men they feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Isn't it interesting? These pagan Gentile sailors are more obedient to the promptings of the Lord than his Hebrew prophet. And we discover from Jonah chapter one, you can run, you can run anywhere and everywhere. But you can't hide from the omnipresent God. Number two, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's been well said by a number of evangelists over my lifetime. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. So the bad chapter division between Jonah 1 and Jonah 2, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish. Notice it doesn't say a whale, it just simply says a a great fish. I'm of the uh, persuasion that it was a supernatural creation by God for this specific purpose. And so the Lord, and that, by the way, indicates also that I do believe that the story of Jonah is historical. I don't believe it's an allegory. I don't believe it's mythological. Uh, I, by the way, don't think it's a negotiable or an optional thing for those of us who take the Bible as God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Ultimately, uh, it's not so much an issue of inerrancy as it is an issue of Christology. Because Jesus is pretty clear in the Gospels that He believed that Jonah was a historical figure who was swallowed by a historical fish. And so if you begin to doubt the historicity of Jonah, your problem is really with Jesus. And you've got a serious problem now. And so the Bible says God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, let me correct here an often uh, misunderstanding of what's going on here. Sometimes people say, well, God sent the fish to swallow Jonah to punish him. No, not at all. No, the fish was not Jonah's punishment. The fish was Jonah's salvation. In fact, the fish was Jonah's transportation. I mean, he needed this yellowfin tuna to get him back to the dry land so he could make his way over to Nineveh. Furthermore, it was also for Jonah's education. You find out some things and you learn some things in the belly of a great fish, you probably won't learn anywhere else. Been there? I have. Wasn't the belly of a fish, but it was a dumpster. Uh, outside of, uh, McKinney, Texas in, uh, July of 1984 in 110 degree heat with a master's degree working on a PhD and couldn't even find a church that would invite me to lead in silent prayer much less come on their staff and serve them and there God has me as a courier for a real estate company making $5.50 an hour cleaning out a dumpster because a bunch of morons had put so much garbage in it and around it the dumpster people wouldn't come pull it off and so they put out another dumpster out there that was empty and I got to crawl into the packed dumpster and throw the other junk into the other dumpster so they would be kind of evened out so they would come and get it so did you enjoy that experience no (laughs) did you learn a lot from it yes jonah learned a ton we have to move quickly but just note the prayer that he prays from the belly of the fish, which will confirm my thesis that he was rescued by the great fish. It was not his punishment. I called out to the Lord. I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the grave, uh, out of the belly of death, I think is the intent here, I cried, and you, you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, not into the... Great fish, but into the deep and into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. In other words, I'm drowning. You had these sailors throw me into the water and I'm going down, down, down. And I am drowning. Verse 4, I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down, there it is again, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, O Yahweh, my Elohim. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Here's his education. Those who pay regard to vain idols, even if it happens to be a nation. And let me make myself clear here before I go on. People sometimes misunderstand. I love our country. I know it has faults and shortcomings, but I hands down believe that we live in the greatest country in the world. I love it. I would serve it. I would die for it. But if you turn the USA into an idol, then you're guilty of sin. And many of us have been raised in churches that come really close to crossing a line of blurring the distinction between our God whom we worship, and our nation, whom we love. And I've said this really all of my life, so it's not anything new. If I have to make a choice between the Lord Jesus and the United States of America, the USA is going to lose like every single time. And if you have any other thought process other than that, then you probably are in the boat, no, in the fish with Jonah, worshiping a vain idol. I do have more in common with my brother or sister who lives in Yemen than I do an atheist who votes Republican who lives in the U.S. Now, that's not popular in some of our churches in the Deep South, but we need to be confronted with our idols that we construct that blur whom we ultimately give our allegiance. Jonah makes it very clear here that he's learned from the Lord that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of Hesed, of steadfast love. But now that he has been taught, I will with the voice of thanksgiving sacrifice to you, uh, what I have vowed, evidently He promised in the belly of the great fish, You, you or at least in the ocean, you get me out of, from drowning and you get me back to dry land. Uh, I will go and preach to them. And so then you have this perhaps greatest statement in all the Bible, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I could not help it. I did a detailed word study of that word vomited and I discovered that in the Hebrew it means vomited has no other nuance no other uh you know additional uh understanding no it just means to, to 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 spill your guts to throw up to puke uh to to use it in our common vernacular but in the midst of all of that Jonah learned a lesson that we need to take to the nations and take to the world salvation belongs to Our God. Lesson number three, our God is the God of the second chance. The word of the Lord, chapter 3, verse 1, came to Jonah the second time, and God did not change his message much. Arise, imperative, go, imperative, to Nineveh, that great city, and third imperative, call out against it. And here's the only addition besides the word, again, you have the phrase, the message I tell you. In other words, God is very precise in what he tells Jonah to do. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was, and the ESV and virtually all other translations will say something like this, it was an exceedingly great city. But literally in the Hebrew, it is a city great to God. Now, it certainly was a city great in influence. It was a city great in size. uh, It was a city great in wickedness. But it was a city that was great to God he cared about it so the Bible says three days journey was its breadth." Jonah then began to go into the city going a day's journey some have said well he was being disobedient he stopped I don't think so I think that going in the first day he got about a day into it most people think the three days journey means it would take uh, three days to traverse it probably not three days to evangelize it effectively going to the major city gates that's more likely And so he immediately begins and he gives the message, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the God who gave his prophet a second chance now gives the Ninevites a second chance. And it says, the people of Nineveh said, Amen. They believed God. And not only did they believe God, like the sailors, they gave tangible evidence of the repentance of their lives. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Verse 6 going on down recounts for us that the king himself, the leader, uh, also brought the nation to full and complete repentance. In fact, he says there in verse 8, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from the fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did so that... From my page here they turned from the evil way god relented some have god repented of the disaster he said he would do to them and he did not do it now that causes some people all sorts of anxiety and it has also been the occasion of some theological error god repenting uh, those who buy into the heresy and it is a heresy uh, called Open Theism, who believed that God cannot know in advance the free will acts of His free creatures, else they would not be free, uh, draw the conclusion that God did not know whether or not uh, Nineveh would repent. God did not know whether or not they would relent, and so when they do, He is uh, as surprised, perhaps, as was Jonah. But that is uh, not what the t- Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that our God is an omniscient God. He knows all. He knows all things, past, present, future, actual, and potential. Uh, He does not repent in the sense that humans repent. In fact, I think the best way to capture what is going on here is they changed, that is the Ninevites in their will, and God therefore willed a change. In other words, did God change the direction in which he was going? No, Nineveh changed the direction in which it was going. God is consistently in His Word a God who forgives when sinners turn and repent. It's not God who does the turning. It is sinners who do the turning. And so because they have turned from their sin, God indeed relents and He does not destroy them and does not visit them with the disaster that He had said He would give. And therefore we learn that God is the God of the second chance. But finally and most importantly, we learn this. Lost people matter to God, and therefore, lost people should matter to us. You would expect, given the fact that Jonah has just participated in perhaps the greatest revival in the history of the world, he would be elated. He would be celebrating. He would be excited, but no. His nationalistic, racist bigoted heart. You see, Jonah's problem, hear me and hear me well, Jonah's problem was not of the head. Jonah had perfect theology. Jonah's problem was with his heart. And you know, seminary is again a very dangerous place for that to capture you. You can study here for four years, seven years, ten years, do a bachelor's degree do a master's degree get a phd and i mean be as orthodox and as straight as a gun barrel and yet you can have a heart that is cold a heart that is indifferent and the bible says knowledge without love only puffs you up and makes you arrogant and the bible is very clear god hates pride so here's jonah oh he has a phd in theology but he's not even in grammar school when it comes to having the heart of God. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Uh, He he was greatly distressed. He was angry. And so he prayed to the Lord. Now, this is the second time he has prayed. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? See, we now are informed of a conversation that took place back in chapter 1, but was not recorded in chapter 1. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah of is evil. I'm going to destroy them, but I'm going to give them a second chance. You go preach to them. And, and Jonah says, no, 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 no. I, I don't think so. Uh, because I know what will happen. If I go and preach, and if the Osama bin Laden's of that nation repent, you're not going to judge them. I, I know. I know what you're like. And that's why I ran. I made haste to flee to Tarsus. Why? Because I know, and he quotes here, One of those great Hebrew confessions found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, but also scattered elsewhere in the Old Testament. I know you are, number one, a gracious God. Number two, a merciful God. Number three, you're slow to anger. Number four, you're abounding in hesed, in steadfast love. And number five, you relent from doing disaster. I knew all this. Why do you think I ran the other way? Therefore now, O Lord... Please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now God's already more gracious than I'd have been. (laughs) Kill me. Boom. Done. (laughs) I can go find a dozen better prophets than you, you moron, and so you want to die? I'll answer that prayer. Boom, gone. But God doesn't wipe him out, God raises a question. Jonah, are you, are you doing well to be angry? And Jonah's so ticked off, he doesn't even respond. No, verse 5, and this has become so comical. I mean, whoever wrote Jonah, probably Jonah, uh, in spite of all of his shortcomings and uh, weaknesses, he did have at least a, a, a modicum of a sense of humor. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a little booth for himself there, and he sat in it uh, uh, in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Maybe their repentance will be short-lived and God will still zap them. Maybe God will change his mind and wipe them out anyway. After all, Israel is the apple of his eye, and would he dare allow the Assyrians embodied in the great city of Nineveh to come and judge them? Well, he most certainly did in 722 B.C. Jonah, by the way, lived probably ballpark around 750 B.C. He he sees the storm clouds of God's judgment on the horizon. He actually knows deep within his heart that Israel deserves it, but he's holding out hope that God will change his mind. So God gets active in his life. Uh, The Lord God appointed a plant a gourd, uh, the castor oil plant, many Bible scholars think. And he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was, and it is the only time in the Bible, he is said to be happy. He's not just happy, by the way. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But you all know a saying, don't you? Here today... Gone to Mark. Comes from this story. God appointed a worm. By the way, God's the hero of the, of the story without any question, but probably the next great hero in the book is the worm. God appointed a worm, and it attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, the, the Sirocco. Uh, it is said that some men went mad when uh, blasted by that uh, furnace heat uh, there in the Middle East. And so Jonah is now being blasted by a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down, it means to box, so the sun began to box the head of Jonah so he was about to faint. And so he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, if I might paraphrase you, doggone right, I do well to be angry. I'm so mad I could die. All right, let's, let's analyze this thing, Jonah. Let's, let's just do a little quick cost assessment here. You pity a plant. You didn't labor for it. <laughs> you didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Here today, gone To Mara. Alright, so you have pity on a plant. Uh, You're concerned most and foremost about your comfort. You're glad to serve me if you're comfortable. You're glad to serve me if my agenda matches up with your agenda. In contrast, should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. If you're talking about Nineveh proper, he's including children and adults. And bottom line, he's just simply saying, they have been so far removed from my revelation and my truth, they hardly know their left from their right. They hardly know up from down. Uh, More than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. And also, there's much cattle here. And again, it is an indication that he is the God of all creation. He cares for all uh, that he has made. In other words, God cares for the people of Nineveh. Jonah cares for a plant. God was concerned for the welfare of others. Jonah was concerned for himself. God created all that was in Nineveh. Jonah didn't create anything. God tended Nineveh, and Jonah didn't do anything for the plant. The people of Nineveh were of eternal significance. The plant, it's here today and gone tomorrow. God is concerned with human life. Jonah's only concerned with his comfort and his own selfish personal interest. And so the book ends with a question, a question that Jonah had to answer and a question that you and I are called to answer as well. Well, lost people really do matter to God. Do they matter to you and to me? Lost people and my comfort, which will I choose? Lost people and God's agenda for my life, which will I choose? You see, I know a lot of people, I've been guilty of it as well, who are really excited to serve God as long as God's agenda matches up with mine. But what if God's agenda for your life and my life surprises us, catches us off guard, throws a curveball at us that we were not expecting, and yet it's very, 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 very clear. This is His will for my life. Are you really here today willing to give God a contract that you sign your name at the bottom and then you say, Lord, it's a blank page. You fill in the details. Anything less is simply inadequate in light of who he is and what he has done and the needs that we see all around us. He's not my hero theologically, but I do like his statement, Charles Finney. It is the great business on earth of every Christian to save souls. Now, if you are neglecting the main business of life, then just what are you living for? And the wonderful Methodist evangelist Sam Jones said it so well. If I had a thousand tongues, they should all talk of Christ. A thousand hands, they should all work for Christ. A thousand feet, I'd put them all in the service of Christ. So I ask you as I began, will you, will I, will we truly be on mission with God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Every time I read the book of Jonah, I am convicted. Every time I study it, you prick my heart. Because, Lord, I recognize that deep within my heart, a heart that is deceptive and deceitful and evil, uh, there is a selfish Danny Akin. There is a Danny Aiken who wants to be comfortable, a Danny Akin who wants to serve you, but wants to serve you in a way that I like and that I enjoy. Lord, I'd be a liar if I did not say that within my heart there are... Uh, evidences and traces of, of, of bigotry and racism and Lord I look at some people with a condescending air and look at them down my nose and sometimes can even for a moment rejoice in the thought of you getting them and judging them. But Lord when I think in those kind of ways it's an indictment of my heart it's an indictment of how great a sinner I am and how great a Savior you are. And Lord I guess I could look pretty good if I compare myself to an Osama bin Laden. But you never called me to compare myself to him. You called me to compare myself to your son. And now, Lord, I am just so undone the, the, the evil and the wickedness that resides in me is almost more than I can bear. And so I praise your name this morning that I don't have to bear it. Because you did in my stead. You took all my sin. You took all my wickedness. You took my bigotries and my racist tendencies and my arrogance and my pride and you bore it at Calvary in my place. And so therefore, Lord, I have nothing to boast in except the cross. And I need to walk humbly before you, thanking you, And out of gospel gratitude, pledging anew, Lord, I will go where you want me to go. I will serve where you want me to serve. And I will preach your word to those who need to hear about Jesus. Lord Jesus, may that be the heartbeat of every single one of us this day. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.